Well, good morning. I guess I'm live. You can hear me. Well, Pastor Tim and Tammy, they're uh, they're on a vacation to celebrate their anniversary. So Tim asked me to Pastor Tim asked me to fill in today. So it's always a privilege to do that. Uh, I know Dal and I've talked about just as we study um, and we should be studying all the time. Right. <laughs> Um, when you got to get up and speak, you really want to study. And uh, and it's just such a blessing when when we get into the word and we dig in. The Lord is so faithful to reveal himself to us. So I, I, I'm hopeful today. I, I just know that the Lord is going to have a word for you today. And we're going to talk about Jesus. So he's, he'll always honor that word. So the title of the message today is Refocusing on Christ. And if you want to turn to your Bible, the scripture will be Colossians 1. Verses 15 to 20. And so I'm jumping off the theme Pastor Tim has started for the new year, the 2020 vision, casting for the year 2020, our vision for, for the year. And uh, so here at Forsberg Baptist Church, to keep Jesus and the gospel at the center of all we do here. And so with that, we will dig in and talk about the person of Christ today. But I want to start out with a little story, personal experience I had. Um, when I was 20, living in Bakersfield, California, I came to realize that my vision had gradually gotten worse. And it kind of came to a head, so to speak, when I one day I was riding in a carpool for work. And the guys in the car were reading a bumper sticker on the car ahead of us. And I, I, could, I could see the back of the car, but I couldn't make out the sticker. And I, so I turned to the guys. I said, you can read that? And uh, my friend next to me said, here, take my glasses. I think you need them. And, you know, so I just went ahead and put them on. And, oh, my goodness, a whole new world opened up to me. I could read the bumper sticker and I could see trees and things. It's like, oh, everything's so clear. So it's, it's kind of like when I put them on, like I said, I could see things and things that I could see years ago. But so what had happened over a few years is my vision degraded so slowly that I thought what I was seeing was the way I was supposed to see. My vision became normal to me. What others could see clearly, I saw very unclear, very fuzzy. So our Christian life can become that way. We don't one day wake up saying, you know, I think I'm going to walk away from the faith today. I'm going to walk away from Jesus. Just like with me and the bumper sticker, the way we see things spiritually can get fuzzy. Our move away from what we believe can be a slow drift. Sometimes, like with my physical sight, it's almost imperceptible. So today in our text, we will look at some Christians in the small town of Colossae that had a vision problem. Or at least a struggle in holding on to the clear picture of their faith that they once had just a few years earlier. Specifically, what was being challenged was their view of Christ. So this morning in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, I want to look at Jesus. Paul's approach, as we will see, to this church's problem was to present the clear picture of Jesus Christ. The Jesus of history, the Jesus we see in the Bible, and his supremacy and preeminence over all things. So in our passage today, there's always three points, and I've gleaned three things I want to talk about today in terms of Jesus' supremacy that Jesus is supreme in his person, in his power, and is in his position. So quickly, I want to do a little background of the church at Colossae. So the Colossians had started out well. 
Paul had never seen these Christians because this church was a result of Paul's ministry a few years earlier in Ephesus, in, in Asia, Asia Minor. Epaphras, who was a hometown boy from Colossae, likely got saved under Paul in, when Paul was in Ephesus, and he went back to his hometown and started this church. So Epaphras has now traveled to Rome, where Paul is in prison for the first time there. And as the pastor in Colossae, Epaphras has a problem that he thinks that his mentor Paul can help with. His congregation are being pulled away from the pure gospel to something distorted, something fuzzy. We're probably looking at an eight to ten year period here from the time Epaphras brought the gospel to his hometown in Colossae to Epaphras traveling to Rome to see the, the great apostle. So, But during those eight years or so, something had happened. False teachers in the area came into the church teaching something called Gnosticism or an early form of Gnosticism. So the root word here, just to kind of give you a background of what Gnosticism was, the root word is gnosis, which means knowledge. The Gnostics thought that they were the spiritual elite, okay, who needed to educate these small town people about life and spirituality and how to know God. One way to put how these false teachers saw themselves was people in the know. Some of what the Gnostics taught was the physical world was evil, the worship of angels, observance of Jewish laws, and the practice of mystical rites. Very religious, very elitist, this higher knowledge. A hodgepodge of Judaism, Greek philosophy, and Eastern mysticism. So in this belief system, Christ was indeed an important person, okay? And he was worthy of attention, but not the Son of God deserving of worship. Since they believed the physical world was evil, now this is a key tenet of our faith, Jesus could not have a physical body denying the incarnation. So they thought, okay, God as creator is so holy and so far removed from the physical world, which is evil, you had all these what they call emanations, like angelic beings that got further and further away from God till finally some angelic thing a long ways away from God could actually touch the physical world and create it. So Jesus was one of those in-between emanations or angelic beings. So this teaching didn't discard Jesus. It dethroned him. As Bible teacher and writer Warren Wiersbe says, the false teachers would not deny the importance of Jesus Christ. They would simply dethrone him, giving him prominence, but not preeminence. And those two words, those two P words, you know, in our lives, we can give Jesus prominence, right? But do we give him preeminence? Do we give him first place? Do we give him everything that we have first? I, I remember reading through the Bible just a few years ago, brought up in the church, Hadn't really read through the Bible. Just sit down and read it. And these yearly Bibles are really good, aren't they? Kind of keep you on track. And one of the things that struck me was about one of the things and the personages in the Old Testament was David, a man after his own heart, right? God's own heart. And after I read through the Bible and the Psalms and, and the, the history of David as king, I came up with this, this line. David, when he was successful, came to God first and he came to him always. That is describing the preeminent life of Jesus in your life. Not just prominent, he's preeminent. So what was the great apostle's approach in responding to this false teaching? To teach and declare the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. 
So we will see in our six verses, Paul uses the word all seven times referring to Christ. Sufficient, all, everything is in Jesus. Paul is saying, you don't add anything to Jesus. It's not like a vitamin called Jesus Plus. We don't need a supplement to Jesus to give us more acceptance with God. Paul's view of Christ that he wanted to remind the Colossians of was the true picture of Christ. Like me, the Colossians needed a vision adjustment, a spiritual vision adjustment. So with that brief background, let's look at our text, verses chapter 1 of Colossians, verses 15 and 20. If you want to turn there, and I'm going to read that so we can hear it in its context. Verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So then in everything, he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Powerful text. One of the most powerful texts Describing who this person Jesus is. So let's look at our first P here. First, Jesus' supremacy in his person in verse 15. So we read that Jesus, the Son, is the image of the invisible God. So this word image means an exact representation and revelation. The word for image is the Greek word for is icon. It meant like a portrait, an exact picture of a person. But the meaning goes further than that. It also carries the idea of revealing the character of a person. What's being said is Jesus is not just a physical picture or image of God, but the revelation of what God is really like. This is like what the writer to the Hebrews says when he says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. What God is like in his character. The core of who God is. This is why when Jesus was asked by the disciple Philip, show us the father. Jesus could say, Philip, guys, if you see me, you've seen the father, what the father is really like. We know God is invisible and no man has ever seen God, as John says in his gospel. But John does go on to say that the one and only son who is himself God And is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. This is the beautiful mystery. It calls it the mystery of godliness. And when you read that letters, uh, the letter of Paul to Timothy, it says the mystery of godliness. You think, okay, is that our godliness? No, that is the godliness revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's speaking of God becoming man. And so Paul describes it this way in that text in 1 Timothy 3. Paul describes it. He says, he, Jesus, appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. So what is being said here in verse 15 and other parts of the New Testament is that Jesus himself is God. Not created in God's image, 
like we are. But Jesus is the image of God. God's essence, God's substance is Jesus. Just like the Father, co-eternal, co-equal. Three persons, one God, same substance, same essence. Scripture says we see God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? Seeing the face of Jesus Christ. You know, one day we'll see his face, won't we? We will see the face of Jesus. There's a song um, that's always moved me. And it's the Gaithers and I think it's Mark Lowry, who's kind of a crazy guy, you know. He's got a great voice. (laughs) Um, But I think he wrote this song. Mary, did you know? And when I think about seeing God in the face of Jesus Christ, I think about this revelation of Mary, his mother. And this was so inspired by the Lord for him to write this. So it's, it's like Mary is picturing over time. Remember it said that Mary, when things would happen in Jesus' life, it said she would ponder these things in her heart. I think she was re- realizing over time, it's like, he's special. Well, she had Gabriel come, right? <laughs> okay. I don't know a man. She knew something special was going to happen and did happen. She knew this was a special child, but I don't even think Mary fully understand, fully understood. I think it was an evolution. It was this, it was this gradual revelation in her heart of who her son Jesus was. But this words of the song, listen to the words. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy? Will come a storm with his hand. Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? And when you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. Oh, Mary, did you know? Wow. So we've seen the supremacy of Jesus in his person. Now let's look at his supremacy and power. Verse 15b. We have the phrase firstborn of all creation. The English here makes it sound like Jesus was created. Firstborn is not referring to time here, but to put to his place and status to honor. Not first created, since we know he's created all things. And we'll see that more fully as we move through here. Firstborn means of first importance, of first rank. Because, you know, Isaac was born after Ishmael. Jacob was born after Esau. But they were both, the word used here for firstborn, we were used to describe these younger brothers. So it doesn't mean first in time, it means first in honor. So firstborn, Jesus is firstborn of all creation, means that the highest honor belongs to him. Christ is completely supreme over all creation. So moving into 16, we see three prepositions when talking about Jesus' supremacy over creation. They're very important. And I want to tell you just real quick, when you're reading the Bible, these little words, sometimes that we just kind of quickly go over, even little prepositions, they are pregnant with meaning. You realize that the word in Christ and that's a whole other study, like in Ephesians in the New Testament, is used over 160 times in the New Testament in Christ. God's trying to tell us something. It says that in, in context of him being the creator of all things, in verse 16, it says that all things, there's that word all again, were made by him, through him, and for him. So what is in him? In him speaks of Jesus being the cause of creation. Through him speaks of Jesus being the agent of creation. 
John says the same, uses the same word in, in 1, 3 of his gospel. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus cannot be a created being, because everything that was made was made by him. So he's unmade. <laughs> he's uncreated. He's the first cause. He's the agent. He's the cause. Now, this word for, I really want, this really reveals something to me about Jesus and how our lives should be revolving around him. This word for speaks of Jesus being the goal of creation. This for him carries the idea that everything in the universe is moving towards him. Everything is culminating in Jesus. It's like the sun and the planets. I mean, everything is revolving around him. Kind of interesting, sun, S-U-N, S-O-N, right? Everything is revolving around him. And everything is culminating in him. Everything is moving towards him. I had this picture. I know you guys have probably seen the seven, you know, talked about or heard about or read in books about the seven wonders. But And I don't know if the Grand Canyon, I think it's one of the natural wonders. I remember the first time that I walked up to the Grand Canyon. How many have been to the Grand Canyon? <laughs> it's just this big hole in the ground, right? But it's more than that. When you walk up to this thing, it's like a it's like a uh, it's like a portrait. It's like a picture. It doesn't look real, and it's so big and it's so massive and it's so deep. It's almost like unless you're scared of heights, but it it, it almost pulls you towards it. It's like you're drawn to this thing because it's so the, the beauty and the majesty and the enormity. And this is what it's saying of Jesus. Because of his person and because of the plan of God, everything is moving and being pulled towards Jesus. And this is God's ultimate plan. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 says that the mystery of God, his will is to bring everything in heaven and earth under Christ's reign into him. And for him, this is the this is the world in the future where man will be under the governance of God, ruling over and with the church, the the new humanity, which is the church ruling and reigning on the earth. And, you know, guys, I know we struggle today and I'm not going to get Tim and I've talked about Tim and I've talked about not to get political because that's not uh, to be about in the pulpit. But I know there's a lot of things going on in our political world. But, you know, until Jesus sets his foot and it says that he will come with the shadow of the archangel and he will set his feet on the eastern mount and he will split that mountain with his foot when he comes back in the second coming. And until Jesus sets his foot on the earth, there will be no governance like we hope it would be. There will be no unity like we long for it to be. All this division we see amongst the parties and the Republicans and Democrats, the hatred, that's expected. But one day when King Jesus shows up, the governance will be the way God intends it to be. There will be unity. There will be peace. There will be a humanity united in him. There will be no this back and forth. It will be love. It will be people together. But it will not happen until Jesus is here, ruler and reigning on the earth with his church. And as sure as the sun comes up to morning, Jesus will come back. He will split the eastern mount and peace will be at that point on the earth. Praise God. We have that to look forward to, don't we? We can pray for governance now, but knowing that it's always going to be weak. It's always going to be feeble. It's run by sinners. 
But the Lord of glory will one day rule and reign on the earth. And we will rule, it says, and reign with him. In verse 16, all of creation includes things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. This phrase is talking about the angelic realm, and this was a direct hit at the Gnostics. Remember I said that they worshipped angels and they had all these emanations, these little gods coming out from God to, to create and do their thing. And, and uh, so because God couldn't touch the physical world because he was holy and the physical world's evil. And what he's saying is Jesus is not an angel. There are angels. Jesus is not an angel. He created all the angels and he controls all the angels. He's Lord of the invisible world and the physical world because he created it all and it's all for him. So in verse 17, we see Jesus' supremacy even extending even further. It says he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He sustains what he's made. So he is before all things. Let's look at that that phrase. It's speaking in terms of eternity and timeless. He's timeless. He's the great I am. And Jesus made this religious, he made him really mad. Remember, Jesus would always say things. And it's like, Jesus, you're not really doing yourself any favors here because he would use phrases that he knew would get the religious people going. But you know what he was doing? He was speaking truth. And one of the things that he said was, he made him mad when he said he called himself the I am. Well, what does that mean? Well, in the Jewish mind, they knew exactly what that meant. He used it to describe himself, but this was a term used only for God. And remember at the burning bush with Moses, when Moses said, Who shall I say is sending me to deliver your people out of Egyptian bondage? God spoke in the bush and said, Tell them I am has sent you, the great I am. I am that I am, the self-existent one, the first cause, the uncaused cause, the everlasting father. And guess what the Jews did? It's like, wait a minute. We know your mama. Your daddy's questionable. We know where you're from. We know your brothers and sisters because they had other kids, right? And you're calling yourself the great I am. You're referring to yourself with the term that God used at the burning bush for himself, the self-existent one. That's blasphemy. And so they picked up stones to stone him. And they say, you being a mere man claim to be God. Do you realize the reason Jesus died was killed because of blasphemy? Remember when he went to the temple of Herod and he said, see this temple, it took 46 years to build it. I tell you, you tear this, you tear this temple down. And they didn't know what he's talking about. And it, it explains his body. And in three days, I'll lift it up. I'll raise it up. And they're like, no way. What do you? Well, they didn't understand. They were thinking of the physical. Like, it took 40-some years to build this physical structure. He was talking about his body, the temple, the presence of God himself. He would raise himself up after three days. He would conquer death and sin and the grave. I think he could use the term I am. <laughs> you know, C.S. Lewis talks about the three L's, Lord, liar, lunatic. And I use that. That's really a good one to use out in the, out in the world. Because like C.S. Lewis says, he never intended you to just accept him as a good man. You can call him a poached egg. You can call him this or that, but not just a good man. He's either Lord, based on the statements that he made. He's lying. 
He's just trying to be deceptive or he's Looney Tunes, baby. You lock him up, put him in a straitjacket because men don't talk that way. And so when you're sharing with people, you pin them down. <laughs> oh, well, he's a good man. He's a religious teacher. You know, he's kind of like Muhammad and all the rest of them. No, he doesn't. He doesn't allow you to get off that easy. And when he asked Peter, who do men say that I am? What did Peter say? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And, you know, Pete, it's kind of like me. It's like, you know, right. Those guys are kind of proud. Hey, I got that one, Jesus. He turned the other disciples. Yeah, I got the right answer. And then Peter, I mean, Jesus just blows his bubble, right? He said, sorry, Pete, you got the right answer, but my father revealed that to you. <laughs> That's the only way you could know that. The great I am. That song we just sang. I love that song. Thanks, Charlie, for you guys singing that today. Think of these words describing Jesus, who he's calling himself. The mountains shake before you. The demons run and flee. Think about the angelic world, right? He's in control of demons, angels, everything. At the mention of the name, King of Majesty, there is no power in hell or any who can stand before the power and the presence of the great I am. This is who Jesus is calling himself. And they want to kill him. Because not a mere man can say that in the Jewish. That's why this whole fabrication that Jesus was not deity, that he didn't claim to be deity, is goofy. Because who would, the ones, the very ones that would promote that, like they said later tradition actually put that on Jesus, like he wasn't claiming deity, would be these people. Who look at men and God, a man and God. You cannot bring those two things together. Because if you call yourself, if you're a man and you call yourself God, they will throw stones at you till you're dead. And these are the men that are supposed to come up with this fabricated idea about Jesus' deity? I don't think so. It goes contrary to their, their mind and their religion. That was a sidebar. Sorry. At the end of verse 17, we see the wonderful description of Jesus' power to keep everything he has made. In him, all things hold together. He sustains all that he has made. You know, I want to ask you guys a question. Just personalize it. I know we're talking about creation, but I want to bring this down to where you live. In your heart, in your life, what you're going through right now. I don't know what it is. God knows. Health, money, children. Whatever this thing is that weighs on your heart, do you know he holds you together today? Do you know that when you feel like you're coming apart, Jesus holds you together? And he will not let you go. And there's nothing stronger than him. He made you. I remember years ago, my dad left my mom and divorced and ugly and I was 20. And I was having anxiety and all that because of that. And I felt like the weight was too much. And there was a song on the radio. It's called Mansion Builder. And I worked with engineers. And it's like the Holy Spirit said, do you believe I made you? And I'm like, yeah, I know, Lord, you made me. Well, you know what a bridge builder does? An, an, an engineer? He designs a bridge. He knows exactly how much weight along that bridge it can take he knows all the stress points and the weak points and he says i built you and i know your strong points and your weak points and i will not put too much on you that you will be crumbled that you will be crushed under it that's a promise 
He knows me. I don't, he knows me better than I know myself because I'm all like Fred Sanford. Remember that old show? I'm going to date myself. This is the big one. I'm, <laughs> I'm coming to join you, Elizabeth. Remember that? I don't know how many times I thought I was going under because the weight was so heavy. But he's taken me back to the bridge builder and said, I built you. I know your strong points. I know your weak points. And I will not overload you. There is a purpose in why I'm allowing you to go through this. And I will see you through to the other side. And like Job, (laughs) he said, before I went through this, I heard of you with my ear. But because of this trial, everything was taken from him, even his health. He said, I heard of you with the ear, but now what? I see you as a man sees another face, another man face to face. That was the outcome of what God took Job through. The outcome was God himself. The clarity that he could see God now. Our treasure, the most important thing is our relationship with him. For the grace of God for us to see that. And how much he loves us. And how much he holds us together. And he will not let us go. Hebrews 1.3 says that this one who radiates God's glory. And is the exact image of God. Upholds the universe by the word of his power. And guess what guys. This same word. This word of his power that holds things together. Is the same word we're reading right now. It's the very same word. There's power in his word. So I'm not a physicist, but in the atomic world, there are many theories to help explain how atoms hold together. So uh, atoms are like our, in our solar system. They're made up mainly of space. So what is this mysterious force or power that keeps all things together, even at the atomic level? Well, we know. Because God in his great wisdom has revealed it to us. It is the word of his power. And that word, guess what? Is Jesus. Remember what it says? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word, what? Was God. And forever will be God. That word, personalize it. Jesus holds everything together by his word. And the word that we're reading this morning. And the word that we hide in our hearts. Astronomer and former NASA scientist Robert Jastrow admits something very telling when he says, For the scientist who has lived by his power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> That's a pretty humble acknowledgement of scientists, right? Most of the time they won't acknowledge that. I remember running across this years ago and I thought, oh, that's a humble uh, admission by a scientist. Man in his wisdom still needs God to reveal ultimate truth. And I work in the field of science. You know what our our little bumper sticker would be? We need more data. (laughs) We need more information because we don't know everything. We know very little, actually. 
So we've seen Jesus supreme in his person, his power. And now let's look the last point here. Supreme in his position over the church. Verse 18 says he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And by the way, that word supremacy, that's the only time in the New Testament that word is used to describe Christ. Now we come to the logical conclusion about what we've been looking at. Christ supremacy and preeminence. If Jesus being God in the flesh, creator and sustainer of all things, is not enough. Now we have Jesus as the one who has restored all things. Don't you think this world needs to be restored from something? Don't you get a sense that this is not the way it should be, the way God originally created it? If you don't believe in sin, if you don't believe in the fallenness of man, look at how many world wars we fought. Look at even just within our own country, the hatred and the bitterness we see every day we turn the TV on. Something needs to be restored to something much better. So we see in verse 18 to 20 is the climax of God's story, the heart of the gospel. And you know what gospel means? It's good news. And I've said, if it has anything to do with me, it's not good news. If it has anything to do with me to fulfill what God's doing, it's not good news. If you put 1% of this story in my lap, like Abraham, when he cut the covenant with Abraham, what did he do to Abraham? He put him to sleep. And then he passed through the entrails. He cut the covenant alone because he was going to fulfill both ends of the covenant because only God could do that. He knew Abraham, if, if part of the covenant was, part, it was dependent on Abraham, hey, we're toast. It's God doing the work. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. It's all of God himself. That's why it's good news. He will never fail. He will never relinquish on his promise. He is fully able and he was willing. You can have one or the other and they're not good. You need to put them together. You can be willing. But if you don't have the ability, you're going to fail. You can have the power, but if you're not willing, God is willing and God is able. So this idea of head, verse 18, speaks of origin in terms of the church, source and ruler. He's sovereign over his church. He's in control. And how does Jesus get this position of authority in the church? The next phrase explains it. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. I want to say really quick, you know, we celebrate a lot of things in our lives, and it seems like we celebrate famous people. What do we celebrate? Their birth, right? But you know what? Two things we commemorate in the church, they're, they're, they're sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. What are we celebrating? A birth, a death. We celebrate Jesus' death. Why do you think that is? Because it's so important. Jesus came to die for a reason. The most important reason. So we see in this beginning, the firstborn among the dead... That in everything you might have supremacy. So we saw this word firstborn in 15 in terms of creation. Now it's referring to Christ's death. Just like in 15 it means first in position and importance. So he wasn't the first raised from the dead, right? There's other people raised from the dead. Lazarus, others. But in terms of raising from the dead and importance of what, what that accomplished is paramount. How is Jesus' death more important than any other person's death? Paul said to the Romans this way, speaking of Christ's death, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. There's that word all again. 
but the life he now lives, he lives to God. Jesus' death paid the penalty for our sin. Jesus died to and for sin once and for all. You know what that all is? All time, but for all of us. You think your sin's too, too much, too far, too great for God to, to pay for it, for God to reconcile himself to you, to cover your sin? No. Every sin that you will ever commit or have ever committed is covered under this payment that Jesus paid for you through giving of his body and shedding of his blood. The blood covers your sin from day one to the day you die. If, you, if you're in him today, if you've received his sacrifice for your sin. And we always talk about forgiving ourselves. But who's the ultimate one that we've sinned against? It's God. Who are we to say, okay, well, I need to beat myself up. I need penance. You know what you're doing? You're doing what they did in Hebrews. You're trampling on the blood of Christ. The path to God, there's only one path. And the path is sprinkled with the blood of God's Son. That's the only path He's provided to get to God. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father. And it's a path sprinkled with blood. So Jesus' death paid the penalty for our sin. Jesus died to and for sin once and for all. And his resurrection guarantees eternal life for all who believe in him as Savior. So what we're seeing here, in all of this, Jesus is supreme as creator, sustainer, redeemer, Savior. Supreme in heaven, supreme on earth, in this life and the life to come. I think that pretty much covers it. What do you think? (laughs) He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's Lord over all. Is there anything too difficult for him? I'll share a quick story, and I know I got to hurry here, but I was in California. I was standing. I've never been. I was an oaky person, right? I'd never seen anything bigger than a pond, really. And I walk up to the Pacific Ocean, and it was during this period of my time with my family, kind of disintegrating with my mom and dad, and the depression, and just you know, wh- wh- where am I going from here? And I was standing here looking at this endless water, this Pacific Ocean, and just. Weeping, really inside and outside, just tears and not knowing what my future would hold. And it's like the Holy Spirit said, look at this ocean. And I couldn't see the end of it. I mean, it's off in the horizon. It ends somewhere. We know that, right? <laughs> Europe. Um, but it's like the Holy Spirit impressed me. As I was looking at his creation, he whispered to me, is there anything too difficult for me? And it put my problem in perspective. Thought this is like the St. Fred Sanford syndrome, right? This is the biggest thing. And he said, Take your eyes off yourself and your problem and turn your eyes away and look at me. And it puts everything in perspective. So quickly, verse 19 to 20, we see Jesus could reconcile us, reunite us to God. In verse 19, God the Father was pleased to have all this fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things. So Christ, two things. Christ is qualified to reconcile man to God because of his position in the Godhead. It's God the Son in the Godhead. And he has accomplished our reconciliation through his death on the cross. So how is, Jesus quali- how is he qualified? Well, we see this in the word fullness, which means the totality of the divine powers and attributes and qualities of God. We see also in this 
these divine attributes, it says dwell. What does that speak of? Permanence. So everything that God the Father is, every quality that God the Father has, Jesus has. And he's always had it, and he always will have it. From everlasting to everlasting, as it talks about God in the Old Testament, it applies to the Father, it applies to the Son, it applies to the Holy Spirit. Put another way, Jesus has in himself every attribute that God the Father has. And these attributes Jesus has always had and he will forever possess. Don't you think you could trust him today? I've heard it said and, and, you know, God has me in his hand, right? You know, we sing that in, in Sunday school. He's got the whole world in his hand. This person that we're describing... We have to personify him, right, with like a hand. But can you imagine this hand that this, of this person I'm describing holds you? He holds you. Is there anything that can hurt you when this person holds you? Nothing. Everything else is like what it says in the Avengers is a puny God. This is the God. And I've heard it said, I may shake in the hand or on the rock, but the rock never shakes under me. It's always secure. This sheds light on what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him. Do you see this amazing work of God? God himself, through his son, performed the work of reconciliation with man. The beautiful and wise plan of God, satisfying two things that God had to satisfy. On the one hand, he's the God of mercy. On the other hand, he's the God of justice. How can you satisfy those two things together? You have to do both yourself. Man can't do that. It has to be both God and man. The God-man, Jesus, could satisfy the justice of God by dying for us as a man. And could satisfy the mercy of God in not giving us what we deserve, which is death. He died for us in our place. Isn't that a beautiful plan of God? And it had to be him. It had to be him. It could be nobody else in the universe. It had to be Jesus. And he's able, how? Through the cross, make peace through the blood of his shed blood. Jesus' death was not a mere inspiring example of self-sacrifice. There was a price to be paid, a perfect sinless sacrifice for man's sin. And in Hebrews, it talks about this. You know, it was a picture in the Old Testament, all the sacrifices, they were continually made, right? Because it said the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. That's why they had to be made every year. Because they're temporal. But enter Jesus, the eternal one, the eternal death. The eternal sacrifice. His blood covers everything. From start to finish for, for eternity. God satisfied his mercy and his justice through the sacrifice. How? Of himself. Of himself. So as Paul said in Romans 3, God could, do, could be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Oh, how great are the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. So this is Christ's exalted position. We've seen his supreme in, in his person, in his power, and now his position. And this, I'm going to end with this text here. This is Christ's exalted position. Jesus, God's son, humbled himself, died on the cross, and God has exalted him to the highest position with the name above all names. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
So how to, to conclude and just a quick application. We've seen and spent some time this morning looking at the real Jesus, the one that the Colossians once saw like they should see, but their view of him became fuzzy, right? Paul's prescription was not to say just try harder, but to take a long look at Jesus, to refocus their view of him, to turn their eyes upon Jesus, as the hymn says. And so what have we seen this morning? Just a quick survey, such that we could spend so much time on this, on the person of Christ. We see him as creator of all things who existed before time began. We see him as sustainer of all things, keeper of all that he's made. We see him as the savior of all, the redeemer, the faithful shepherd of the church, the head of the church, the restorer of all things, the reconciler of men to God. And then you know what happens, guys, when we focus on Jesus? We can see ourselves the right way, the way God sees us, and what Jesus has done for us. And the three things that apply to Jesus can apply to us. Person, power, position. So in our person, we're new persons, aren't we, in Christ? Old things have passed away, all things have become new. We're no longer enemies, but friends. Not alone in this world, but sons and daughters of the king of the universe. In power, we have new power. We were once powerless over sin and Satan and death. And now we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. Amen. Right? Amen. In our position, we were translated from darkness to light. From the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Seated with Christ now in the heavenly realm. We're here, but we're there. We're dual citizens. The world will try to dethrone him. Our flesh will try to displace him. Satan will try to disparage him. But if we keep the genuine Jesus revealed in his word before our eyes and constantly before our eyes, we will not be tempted with counterfeits like the Colossians were. And as we see him for who he is, who he really is, then it's reasonable to keep him first in our hearts. That word preeminent means first, where he belongs, at the front, at the center. So let's look to Jesus this morning. Let's turn our eyes upon Jesus. Let's look at his wonderful face together. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this amazing plan that you've fulfilled in your son to reconcile us. This person that we can't take our eyes off of, but we truly focus our eyes on him. He draws everything to himself. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men, all people into myself because of who he is. This glorious one, this radiant one that reveals the glory of God, who is God himself. God, help us to put you first where you rightfully belong. You are preeminent. Let's take you from this prominent position It puts you in the preeminent position, the first position in all things in our lives where you belong and where you are in in this universe and in this world. And where you will one day be the center of all attention. We thank you in Jesus' name, Father. Amen.